This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. With two major reports on the failings of long-term care in Ontario, we'll look at the other side. Where and how is it done right? And unexpected psychological fallout from the pandemic. The impact of losing those casual relationships we never gave much thought to. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Do you turn to food for comfort during the pandemic? According to a new study by the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, most Canadians do, with three in five reporting undesired weight changes. More than 42% say they've gained weight, and a third have packed on between 6 and 10 pounds since last March. The younger people are when they develop type 2 diabetes, the higher their risk of dementia later in life. That's the conclusion of new research in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Many studies have pointed to the links between diabetes and higher dementia risk. Now the new findings suggest that younger people with diabetes may be at particular risk down the road. According to the work, at age 70, people who had been recently diagnosed with type 2 2 diabetes had no greater risk of dementia than those without diabetes, but those who had been diagnosed over 10 years prior had double the risk. Every single day I speak to all five of my grandkids, either on the phone or I text with them. Like many devoted grandparents, President Joe Biden has a strict rule. No matter what's happening, he always answers a call from one of his seven grandkids. The 78-year-old U.S. president says it's a ritual he's carried over to the White House from the campaign trail, and he says no topic is off-limits. Hester Ford, who was believed to have been the oldest American, living long enough to have experienced two pandemics, both world wars, Jim Crow discrimination, civil rights movements, and the elections of 21 presidents, died last week at her home in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mrs. Ford was believed to have been born on August 15th, either 1904 or 1905, on a farm in Lancaster County, South Carolina, where she grew up tilling fields and picking cotton. Theodore Roosevelt was president at the time. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week, two devastating reports detailed the failure of Ontario's long-term care sector to protect elder residents. Where should we look for the right kind of change? Author Moira Welsh takes us through unique facilities that demonstrate how the right living arrangements can help people live with purpose and connection 
in old age. We talked about her book, Happily Ever Older, Revolutionary Approaches to Long-Term Care. Most coverage of the issue of long-term care involves a lot of very negative stuff. What made you decide to write something on the positive side? This emerged from an investigation I did for the Toronto Star in 2018, where I looked at a home operated by the region of Peel that transformed itself from the old institutional style of care with the task-based system and people sitting in chairs staring at the floor for most of the day into a home that was much more vibrant and person-focused. So individuals had the opportunity to pursue their own interests. And it was the reaction from the families who who read it, um, just basically different readers who called me and emailed me and spoke to me with such elation that it made me really curious what else was out there. And and that's when I began traveling across North America and into Europe. You go through a whole bunch of models of uh, a different kind of long-term care home. Do you have a favorite? I think they all share a DNA. And so I think that is uh, applicable everywhere, and it's quite lovely. It's, uh, It's all about creating uh, a life of uh, purpose, social connection, and spontaneity. There was uh, there were a couple of homes that really stood out to me, and I have to say one in North Carolina. It's a retirement community called Carroll Woods. It's just outside of Chapel Hill, and it is built within a forest, 120 acres, in a forest of oak trees, and it is just a, an absolutely stunning location. And people move there in their mid-60s, a lot of retired university professors or government bureaucrats. But what's really special about this place um, are a couple things. One is it's all very community-driven. So there are no none of those organized activities, things I refer to as the beanbag toss at 3 p.m. There are about 80 committees that are all run by the people in the home. So it's very much um, focused on their personal interests and activities. But what's so special about this and and quite innovative, um, even in these times, is talking about the inclusion of the people with cognitive decline. And so this this particular community is very focused on that. And so I I met um, a lot of people who have dementia, but they were out um, in the community. Some of them were working very hard in gardens. Others I chatted with in the dining rooms. Nobody was locked away in a unit on their own. And everyone sort of looked after each other. And that, while uh, maybe in some homes, is still quite a rare occurrence. Do you think that's a a practical kind of model here, even uh, including our climate? It can be. I think we have um, other issues to consider, including the climate, as you say. But I, I think even with a different kind of building, a different kind of community design, that's still going to be um, something that people are going to be doing moving forward. You can create a lot of that same uh, familiar circumstances and sharing of community spaces within a building with gardens around, perhaps with a, a fence around it if needed. And and still people are sharing space with Uh, people who are in different stages of cognitive decline or just different stages of aging. What's the Eden alternative? It's so interesting. It is a philosophy that has been around for quite a while. It was created by Dr. Bill Thomas. He's an American geriatrician. And a number of different homes use it, and they use it in their own ways, which is really interesting. But it basically, he 
saw during his early years as a geriatrician working in long-term care, the incredible loneliness of people. And he told me about a woman who um, he was checking her for a, a rash on her arm, and she pulled him down and said, I am so lonely. And he said it just shocked him. It sort of shook him to the core, and it changed the trajectory of his career. So the Eden Alternative tries to eliminate loneliness, helplessness, and boredom. It says it's the scourge of our existence, and it has a number of different principles, but they're all focused on having a life that is enriched with um, friendships, with spontaneity. They focus a lot on um, um, having plants within your space and room and lots of pets and lots of just uh, interaction with each other to keep life alive, just like it might have been in your earlier years when you had a lot of freedom. How important is the actual nature of the physical space of these places uh, versus how they're run? They're of equal importance. And, and one doesn't really succeed without the other in many ways. So I wouldn't say to exclude the, the relationship uh, focus um, if you have a larger facility, but you can break up um, bigger buildings and renovate into smaller units. And what's happening now, for example, as uh, the Ontario government is building or providing funding for some new homes, some operators, not many, are going for the smaller households. So they're building a community. So they'll have a retirement home, seniors' apartments, but they'll have a long-term care home that has tiny little households of roughly eight people for those who have cognitive decline and slightly bigger households of maybe 15 or 16 people for those who don't, really. And and that creates just a smaller, uh, more family-oriented, calmer household. For a lot of people with cognitive decline, these big institutional settings that we create with 32 beds in one area and big loud lights and noise and so on creates a lot of anxiety and aggression and fear. And so people all operate, generally speaking, and when it's more familiar, they, they're, they're happier in surroundings that seem more natural to the way they lived in their earlier years. Do you see as widespread use of long-term care in the future? I think we need to expand our home care, but yes, we do need more long-term care because of the demographic and because the people who are in long-term care are very fragile, and most of them arrive in their 80s, and so we will be having, um, I believe it's a doubling of people in their 80s by uh, 2050 or even earlier, and so that's a significant number of people who will be quite frail and will require a lot of extra care. Moira Welsh, thanks so much. Thank you, Libby. That was author and Toronto Star reporter Moira Welsh. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, small talk with store clerks and chance conversations with strangers are more important than you think. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Most 
most of us don't give it much thought. Polite small talk with a coworker or a quick conversation with a stranger we pass in the park. Some of us write off these interactions as meaningless, but the pandemic has shown that they're integral to our well-being and sense of belonging, and we miss them more than we realize. Psychology professor Dr. Francis McAndrew has done research on the subject, and I reached him at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. We don't realize, I think, how important a part of our everyday life that is. The number of small interactions you have that are unplanned uh, form kind of a structure to your day-to-day social life. Well, when you lock yourself up during the pandemic, all of the interactions you have are pretty much planned. You're either talking to people that you live with or you've arranged a Zoom meeting of some sort. And it takes away something that we didn't even realize we would miss. But it's an important part of... Uh, you know, social contact that, that's no longer there for us. Is that in itself a bit of a silver lining that suddenly we realize these, this, these, I wouldn't, I don't know if you can call them relationships that we didn't give a second thought to are actually important for us? It depends on how comfortable you are with small talk. In some countries, it's uh, more welcome than in others. But studies do show that we're happier interacting with people, even if it is just a casual conversation about nothing with strangers, compared to not interacting with people at all. But we tend not to consciously realize that, I think. And another thing I I think we fail to uh, recognize until we don't have it anymore is how small talk plays a role in regulating interactions with people that we didn't plan to talk to. So if I run into you on the street and we don't know each other well, The way we small talk with each other uh, allows us to share our feelings about how much do we want to continue this interaction, how much of a hurry am I in to get on my way, and all of that helps us to sort of gracefully manage our meeting. But if you get on Zoom with somebody and it's scheduled, that's all gone away. It's sort of like you have to get right down to business because... It's already been determined because you put it on your calendar that you are going to have a conversation. And it takes away some of the magic, for want of a better way to to put it, I think. Well, one of the standbys of small talk is the opening question, how are you? And the answer is supposed to be, fine, how are you? So are people still answering, fine, how are you? Because a lot of people are not fine. I think that's right, and I think it depends on the nature of the relationship you have with the person you're talking to. If it's an intimate friend or a relative, when they say, how are you, you understand that they may really want to know this and that it's okay to go into some detail about how you're doing. But if you're having a superficial business meeting with some coworkers or something, they say, hey, how are you? You should understand, if you're from North America, that they don't really want a dissertation on the state of your mental health at that moment. So, yes, I think people are still using that opening, but not in the same kind of casual way that you did before. Can it be a kind of dress rehearsal for telling people who are closer to you that you're uh, in bad shape? Small talk? Sure. Um, It's a way of uh, warming up the audience, so to speak. If you are talking to somebody who may not know that you're struggling as much as you are, to just drop that on them out of the blue might even be considered sort of rude. 
So you do need to ease your way into it, maybe by making half-hearted attempts to find out how they're doing, even though your goal is to get around to talking about your own problems. But what you're really doing is seeing how much information you two already have in common. Uh, By making small talk, you can find out whether this other person already suspects that you're not doing well or may have observed something about you uh, that has put them on their alert. So um, I think it still serves a lot of functions in that way. What about sometimes people, they just blurt stuff out, like they start talking and you may as well not be there, but it comes out in a torrent. And I get this both from people I know that are really quite isolated and also on a call-in show I have, and I assume it's because they aren't talking to anyone else. Well, that may be the case, but before the pandemic even started, you still ran into a lot of people like that all the time, right? So it's it's part of social skills. Uh, the person who doesn't recognize that they're doing too much of the talking or they're missing the nonverbal cues in the listener that tells them, okay, it's the other person's turn to talk now. You're going on in a little bit too much detail here. So I think for some people that comes from this desperate lack of social interaction. But for other people, it's just sort of a, a social skill they don't have. But when you put the two together, you're really in trouble. <laughs> so is there going to be any kind of, I don't know, difficulty getting back to this when this is all over? Are people going to remember how to do it? I think so. I mean, it, it's it's so much a part of who we are. And if you're you know, not just a kid, you've been doing this for so long in your life that, uh, you know, compared to riding a bicycle or something, yeah, maybe that, you know, first five minutes that you get back on it, if you haven't ridden it in years, might be a little shaky, but before you know it, you're coasting right along. I think this will be the same way. What would you like to leave us with on all of this? Small talk doesn't get enough respect. Uh, People kind of dismiss it as this superficial, you're wasting my time with this chit-chat, but uh, being able to use it skillfully is an important social skill. It's a way of kind of synchronizing conversations and moving into a more deeper kind of conversation. It's not a it's not a waste of time. Dr. Francis McAndrew, thank you so much for uh, a very deep conversation. Well, thank you. That was psychology professor Dr. Francis McAndrew of Knox College. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.